You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. so crazy about it's just music perfect three-minute pop songs don't just come out of thin air behind many pop stars are hired songwriters hard at work crafting those hits we take a look at the art of songwriting, and we review the long-awaited album from R&B singer Frank Ocean. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and uh, Jim, we're happy to report that the wait is over. <laughs> Four years since the last Frank Ocean record, uh, Channel Orange, came out in 2012, uh, people were waiting for four years, basically, to find out what's this guy going to do next. That album got such acclaim, won a Grammy Award. Mm -hmm. Then he went pretty much silent for the next uh, few years. We got a ton of music all at one time, a multimedia experience, streaming, video, movies. Pop-up stores. Pop-up pop stores, pop stores, a magazine, and, uh, and two albums on top of that, Endless and Blonde. Blonde is uh, being billed as the official follow-up to Channel Orange. We're going to tackle that later on in the show, and I'm really looking forward to that. Absolutely, Greg. We'll dive deep. That's all coming up later. But first, the art of songwriting. How is a hit made? We'll look at two different eras, very different eras in pop music. We'll talk with Ryan Tedder of the pop rock band One Republic about writing for the likes of Beyonce and Taylor Swift. But first, we'll talk with Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, the couple behind immortal hits like You've Lost That Love and Feeling, On Broadway, We've got to get out of this place, and many, many others. That's right, Jim. Their careers began in the early 1960s in the Brill Building. That was that big hit factory right in the middle of midtown Manhattan. There, Man and Wild worked alongside friends Jerry Goffin and Carole King and other great songwriters, crafting hits for people like Phil Spector, who was the great producer from that early 60s rock and roll era. They're one of the few songwriting teams, Man and Wild, to survive well beyond the 60s, both in their careers and in their love life. They've been happily married to one another since 1961. We talked with Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde back in 2011, and we started the conversation by asking the duo how they became songwriting partners and eventually life partners. I was writing with a singer-songwriter named Teddy Randazzo, and uh, Barry came up to play Teddy a song, and I saw him and I was smitten. And I found out where he was signed as a writer. And I arranged to have an appointment with Don Kirshner at Alden Music so that I could see Barry again. So Alden Music is, is like right next door to the Brill Building. It's at 1650 Broadway. The Brill Building's like across the street, right? right. Well, yeah, it's like a block away. Okay. 1650 had, at that time, the younger, the Young Turks, the publishing companies that had younger writers signed. Well, so you were writing with somebody else, Cynthia, and, and you saw this guy, you were smitten. Yes. And you wanted to write with him? Yes. And well, I no, I wanted to date him. I didn't oh. care about writing <laughs> with him. Uh, that was a polite way of saying that you wanted to date me. Yes. 
Right. Wow. You know what blows my mind about this era? You are extremely young when you're working there. I mean, you are writing hit songs, and you're like late teens, early 20s, right? Well, my first hit, I was 19 years old. It was a song called She Say Um Doobie Doom by the Diamonds. Yes. Sounds like it was written by a four-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> and later on, I did Who Put the Bump? So, right. And then I learned. Then I learned how to speak English. And then you wrote with me. Who put the bump in the bump a bump a bump? Who put the rhyme in the ramalama ding dong? Who put the bop in the bop shabop shabop? Who put the dip in the dip 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 dip? Who was that man? I'd like to shake his hand. He made my baby fall in love with me. The relationship developed sort of outside of the writing, or would you say that the writing brought the two of you closer together where you ended up being married? Barry, do you want to take that, or should I? Yeah, I really think that the writing did bring us closer together. We were attracted to each other, but the writing kind of clinched the deal. I asked to see her lyrics, and I really loved what she had written. She she had a style that was very sophisticated, but at the same time, it was very soulful. But she, she really wasn't familiar with the pop market, and I told her to listen to the Drifter records, and I told her to listen to the Everly Brothers and, and a lot of R&B records, too, and, uh, and she picked it up very quickly, and she was able to combine that sophistication with soul. I was um, writing for another company at the time uh, called Lesser Music, which was owned by Frank Lesser, who wrote how to succeed in business and most happy fella and the writers up there were mostly show writers and because that's the direction I thought my career would be going. Yeah, the Broadway thing was very important to you. I know you had some theatrical background. You did some dancing, right, Cynthia? So right. how did you end up, quote-unquote, slumming in, in, in the pop world? <laughs> well, you know, it's amazing what love and lust will do to your <laughs> career direction. <laughs> but uh-huh. Barry was in rock and roll, and he taught me rock and roll. And we started writing, and I got a little diverted from the theatrical path. For he, about he, 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> he put the bump in your bump shabomp, right? <laughs> he absolutely did. You know, that's a very good way of putting it. As I've read the story, when you first approached Kirshner, thinking you wanted to get your eyes on this cute-looking guy, Barry, again, they were interested in hiring you, and they, they wanted to put you with this other songwriter. What's her name? Oh, yeah, Carol King. <laughs> right. You could have had a completely different career in life. Well, I don't think it, it really would have happened because um, Carol was writing with her husband, Jerry Goffin, and Jerry at the time was a chemist during the day. He was a chemist by day, songwriter by night. Kirshner said, she's not writing with anyone during the day. She should be writing with somebody. So why don't you write with her? So I went out to Carol's apartment in Brooklyn, and she gave me a melody that I really liked. I uh, even I, who did not know pop music, thought this was very hit-sounding. And by the time I got home, my phone was ringing, and it was Carol saying, you know, I know this isn't the right way to start a writing relationship, but Jerry came home from work, and he heard the melody I gave you, and he was very interested in it himself, and I have to ask you for it back. Wow. She said, he even has a title. So I said, well, what's the title? You know, and she said, "Take good care of my baby." Mm. I said, "That's a that's a good title, Carol. You know, I'm giving it back to you." Take good care of my baby. Please don't. 
don't ever make her blue Just tell her that you love her Make sure you're thinking of her In everything you say and do You were successful at a really young age. What's fascinating to me is that there was these stables of songwriters, you know, the Brill Building, you and Alden Publishing. I mean, we're talking about some heavy hitters, Neil Sedaka, Howard Greenfield, you know, King Goffin, yourselves. Um, Barry, describe what a working day was like here with these songwriters around. I mean, were you guys literally like working right next to each other, competing for songs? Yeah, sometimes. Um, Alden Music had offices where there was a big main room and on, in the, on the circumference of the room were these little cubicles. There must have been about five or six. And the cubicles just had like a, an upright piano, a piano bench, a chair, and, and an ashtray. Some, would, mm. some people would be lucky and they'd have a window, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so a lot of times we would be writing, and Kirshner would say, the drifters are up. So everybody would run to, the, to their cubicles and they'd start writing for the drifters. So you'd hear everybody's melodies through the wall and <laughs> that kind of stuff. Well, Saturday night at 8 o'clock I know where I'm gonna go I'm gonna pick my baby up And take her to the picture show Everybody in the neighborhood Is dressing up to be there too But it was a very competitive atmosphere, very competitive, especially between Carol and Jerry and Cynthia and myself. They were the talents, and uh, they felt that way about us. And uh, so it was, it was... Well, everyone was talented, but they yeah. were the other married couple talent, and they were also our closest friends, friends. up there. Yeah, it was very confusing, because at, being that they were our friends, we really had great times with them, we really loved them, but at the same time, we wanted that next record, and they wanted that next record. Right, and, so uh, it was... Um, bad news when we heard they got it but we'd have to smile and say great <laughs> yeah so 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 a well-natured but but nonetheless intense competition like the beatles and the stones a couple of years later absolutely yeah, yeah. You, you got a man who's gonna get you smiling every day baby happy time are here to stay Cynthia, Barry, we have to talk about You've Lost That Love and Feeling. Recorded by the Righteous Brothers in 1964, it's been honored by BMI as the most performed song of the 20th century, which is really saying something. Take us through that song. Well, let me start and Barry, sure. you take over, okay? Sure. Um, we had met Phil Spector and he asked us to come out to California to write with him. So Phil played us a record by these two guys from Orange County, and uh, they were both up-tempo songs that Bill Medley had written. One was called Little Latin Loopy Lou, and the other was called My Babe. And he said, I've just signed these guys, and believe it or not, they're um, white guys from Orange County, although they sound like Sam and Dave. And 
we would want to write some, have you guys write something for them. And we started, we wrote two verses and a chorus, and we didn't know how to end the, the chorus. So we called up Phil, we wanted to get his input, and we used the, the title, You've Lost That Lovely Feeling, as a dummy title. We didn't really like the title. So when we played it for Phil, and when we were done playing, we said to Phil, now Phil, man, you know, don't worry about the title, we'll get a better title. He says, no you won't, man, that's the title. Mm. We ended up finishing the song, we went over to Phil's place and we finished the rest of the song. And then the next day we went up and we played it for Bill and Bobby. So uh, Phil and I sang the song to him, and after we were done, it was dead silence. Then Bill said, well... Um, no, it was Bobby. About, no, no, no. Bill oh, said, sounds, oh. sounds good for the Everly Brothers. You know? Oh, right. <laughs> and, then Bobby, and then Bobby said, well, what am I... You know, because the way the song was set up, it was Bill was singing the verses, and then Bobby would just do harmony on the choruses, and then they'd trade off on the bridge. So when they were done, Bobby says, well, what am I supposed to do? Why, the big guy's singing. And Phil didn't miss a beat. He says, you go to the bank. <laughs> <laughs> you never close your eyes anymore. Your lips. There's no tenderness like grief in your fingertips. You're trying hard not to show it, but baby, baby, I love it. What's amazing to me is that you were kind of on this made to order business, constant deadlines. You had to write on a deadline all the time. And yet you were able to come up with these very, some people could describe that as kind of generic, so universal to the point where I could lose any kind of, you know, personal feeling. And yet you were able to drop these lines in there. Like, I understand that Spectre was blown away by the first line of you've lost that love and feeling. Right away, he seemed to sense that you had something there that was above and beyond. I well, it was I, the first, uh, the verses and choruses. I think the line that knocked him out. Yeah, we, Barry, you can. It was something like, beautiful's dying. When, yeah. I, when I sang that line, he said, "You know, I feel like crying." I mean, it, it was a very moving line. It makes me just feel like crying. never imagined that it would be the most performed song of the 20th century. It, it was just something that we liked, and Phil made a magnificent record. Yeah, and Phil said, you know, this is going to be a very important song for all of us. And Cynthia, being a show baby, you know, a theater kid, said uh, any song that has whoa, whoa, whoa in it could never be important. <laughs> Which shows you how much I know. How were you able to sort of get that sort of specificity and sort of that personal connection, you know, when you kiss me, you know, you never close your eyes anymore, those kind of things. I mean, it seemed like you were drawing on, on personal stuff and investing in, in these universal songs. And I think that's one of the keys to why that song is so well-loved over the years. Well, I have two thoughts about that. I think that really great writers are not, are not just perceptive. I, I almost feel they're psychic in a way. And they, can, they have a, the capacity to almost become the artist they're writing for. 
And I think that really is a tremendous advantage. So that's one of the reasons. And I'm forgetting the second reason. (laughs) (laughs) But um, there's a time in your life when, in a creative person's life, Mm. when they're very much in tune with the cultural zeitgeist or the universal thought Mm -hmm. and can tune into it. And I just kind of felt at that point that anything that I like or anything that that I write about is something that other people feel. So uh, some of it was based on personal experience, some of it was based on friends' experience, and some of it was just based on that part of your brain that clicks on when someone says, be creative. Yeah, I think that even if you're writing for an artist, and you may not have lived that artist's life, but I still think some of your personal experience will go into that lyric or that melody. No doubt about it. Cynthia, I know that some of the sophistication you are bringing to these pop songs to this day, I think, is striking. Uh, I'm thinking of something like Uptown by the Crystals, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I know has been described as almost like one of the first songs that was, you know, sociological. You know, and here we were right. in the pop yeah. heyday. Again, drawing on these very specific kind of vignettes. I mean, were these things that you would observe and then sort of write down? I mean, how would these sort of observations come to you that you would end up incorporating them in lyrics to hit songs? Um, That was something that I observed. But first, I want to say that I went to a very progressive high school, and everybody was into Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie and and Hootenannies and that kind of thing. And I saw uh, music as a form of social protest and a form of expressing political views. And so I think I brought a little of that to pop music when I got into pop with Uptown, I had observed very tall, handsome African-American guy pushing something that, you know, those, those things that have all the clothes on them in the garment district. And he, he looked like an African king. And I thought, hmm, here he is pushing a clothes rack. What is his life like? And then I wrote that song. But then he comes up town, he came into my tenement. After a short break, we're going to return to our conversation with Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, where they talk about more of their timeless tunes. Later, a conversation with Ryan Tedder and a review of the new album by Frank Ocean. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that is the song Blame It on the Bossa Nova, sung by Edie Gourmet, but written by our guests Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil. Mann and Weil have been writing massive pop hits together since the early 60s for artists including Wilson Pickett, The Crystals, and The Drifters. One Drifters tune in particular ended up becoming one of their signature songs, one of the great songs really of the last century on Broadway. I wanted to know the origins of that tune and how Barry and Cynthia captured the reality of New York City. Cynthia and I had originally written it for a girls group. Lieber and Stoller weren't involved. And it kind of was the same melody to a, to a large mm. degree. The verses were, uh, they say the neon lights are bright on Broadway. They say there's always magic in the air. But anyway, it was about a girls. The girls group who wanted to get out of out of town and get to Broadway. Mm. Nothing happened with that version, by the way. But it was recorded. <laughs> um, Phil Spector recorded it. Yeah, and Carol and Jerry cut it with the with the with cookie. cookies. I hear the neon lights are bright on Broadway. I hear the dreams come true there every day. Then we heard that Jerry and Mike were about to go in and record the Drifters. So we thought, well, why don't we just go play that for them and see what happens? So we played it for them, and they really liked it a lot, but they felt that it needed a rewrite. And uh, so they gave us a choice to either we could rewrite it ourselves or rewrite it with them. And so Cynthia and I jumped at the chance to, to rewrite it with the Lieber and Stoller, because, I mean, if we idolized anyone, it was them. Then all of us together rewrote it, and it became what it is today. much better song even though the and first, a great lesson in songwriting oh yeah I mean it was amazing to watch the way Jerry and Mike work especially Jerry the way he threw lines out at you and if he got stuck he said well let's go on to the next verse you know and we'll come back to this and Cynthia being basically an obsessive lyricist <laughs> she always felt that you have to finish the verse and then go to the chorus and go back to the next verse mm-hmm. but uh, it was a lesson for her what, what about the cinematic quality of these songs I mean you know we, we, we talk about you've lost that love and feeling I mean obviously that was Spectre Lieber Stoller with on Broadway. How much of that was sort of envisioned by the way you put the music together, Barry? I mean, was it was it sort of like inherent in the demos or in your instructions to the producers and the performers about the way you wanted a thing to sound, or did you sort of hand it off to them and say, "Do whatever you want with it"? Yeah, I, I basically handed it off, but you know, friends or musician friends of mine always said that with the way I played piano, as if the whole arrangement was in my piano playing, and to a degree, they're right. Also, Barry's vocal interpretation was often absorbed by the artist. And a lot of people will say, you know, I can hear you in the other artists that sing your songs. That's quite a tribute. Would it be a case where that they would come to you as they were recording and ask for tips? Or would you you actually be observing a a lot of the recording process? No, no. Phil Spector took, I I think I gave him a piano voice demo. Yeah, but Barry did put the vocal down. And in most cases... I don't think it happened on Broadway, with on Broadway, but in most cases there was a demo, and whether it was elaborate, where Barry kind of laid out how he wanted the record to sound, or whether it was just a piano vocal with him, there was always that Barry Man quality of how a lyric is read mm-hmm. that other people picked up on.
talking to songwriters Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil on Sound Opinions, I want to ask you both about We Gotta Get Out of This Place. Again, we come back to that universality, whether it's the animals singing about breaking out of industrial England or you in your own lives feeling stuck. How did that song come together? We originally wrote the song for the Righteous Brothers, and Barry cut an elaborate, fabulous demo. And when it was done, everybody was saying, my God, this sounds like a record. We, at the time, were involved with Alan Klein, who was later managed the Stones and the Beatles, but... At that point, he was managing some other people. After the demo, I think we were excited about it. We went up to his office, and we played it for him, and then we left the demo there for some reason and and forgot. And I was on Redbird Records at the time. Then we played a copy for Redbird, and they said, we want to put this out as a single. In the meantime, we didn't know Alan Klein had sent it to a client of his named Mickey Most to cut the animals. And so just as Barry's record was set to come out, we got a call from Kirshner saying, I've got great news. You've got a song that's number two in England. And we said, oh, what song? And he <laughs> said, we've got to get out of this place. And we said, no. Oh, my God, no. It's the first time songwriters ever screamed no when someone told them they had a hit. But that killed Barry's record. What did you think of the animals' version when you eventually heard it? (laughs) (laughs) I laughed because because it was a shock. It was truly a shock. They had left out an awful lot of the lyric. And And substituted their own. And and then they repeated the same lyric. Yeah, for the first and second second verse, which, you know, as a songwriter, I just felt wasn't craft. and, Mm -hmm. And had they asked me to change it, For them, maybe I wouldn't have because of Barry's record, but at least I would have had a chance to write something that I felt proud of. So I was kind of upset. And to this day, I think every time we run into Eric Burden, we both kind of look the other way (laughs) because he knew I was upset, Uh you know. Watch my daddy hit me. performance is amazing. The record for what it is is amazing. And it went on to have so much meaning for so many people in the Vietnam War that, I mean, Eric, all is forgiven. Let's be friends. and Uh Let's look each other in the eye next time we meet. As songwriters, I imagine you guys sometimes have to subsume your egos. You create this thing that you're really proud of. Then it goes off, and it's not under your control anymore. Sometimes your baby comes back, and I bet you hardly recognize it. Normally, as a songwriter, it's kind of, as Barry often says, it's the it's the job we chose for ourselves. <laughs> so, this is the business the, we chose. Yeah, and um, so it, it goes with the territory. You write something, and you're proud of it, and you love it, and you're walking in the supermarket, and you hear someone saying, and this is, you know, so-and-so's, uh, with the title of the song 
and you want to say, I wrote that, that's mine, but that's not what the job is. The job is to serve the artist. We could do this for hours. It's been a real uh, honor having you guys on. So thank you so much. Great. Thank you. It's been fun for us, too. That was Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde, the prolific songwriting duo responsible for some of the biggest hits of all time. I got my money up and I can't let go. I'm killing every second till it saves my soul. Ooh, I've been running, ooh, I've been running till the love and down. Now we're going to talk with a more contemporary hit-making songwriter, Ryan Tedder. He's probably best known for being the front man of the pop rock band One Republic, but he's also an extremely successful hired songwriter. And he's written mega hits for Beyonce, Adele, Taylor Swift, people like that. Tedder struggled as a songwriter in Nashville before catching a break in the mid-2000s, and he's maintained his dual roles as both a performer and a songwriter ever since. Ryan Tedder joins us today to talk about his experience writing for artists other than himself and how he creates memorable pop songs. Ryan, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks for having me. So in the early 2000s, when you were just starting out, you worked for the hit music producer Timbaland, who's collaborated with everyone from Missy Elliott to Justin Timberlake. Then after a couple of years, you guys go your separate ways. But when you form One Republic, Timbaland comes back into your life. Tell us about that. It turns out Timbaland had gotten a record label imprint on Interscope, and I randomly get a call from Timbaland saying, hey, I heard your Apologize record on MySpace. I think it's a number one record. I'm obsessed with it. I'd like to remix it, put it on my album. So we, we signed with Interscope via Timbaland. It's been, at this point, two years since I'd even <laughs> talked to the guy. And he comes back into my life, signs us, Apologize gets remixed. It was never supposed to come out as a remix. And it, you couldn't stop it. Once, once his album came out, it was the top-selling song on the album, and it, it became the biggest hit he ever had and our first number one. It's too late How do you make that transition from struggling artists to writing songs for these giant acts? Would you trace it back to something like apologize as, oh, I want to work with the guy who wrote that song? Or what would you attribute the fact that you had this second career as a producer and songwriter going? The fact that they took off at the same time, my writing producing career and my artist career, is complete happenstance. Uh, nobody plans that. MySpace exploded alongside with us exploding live. All of a sudden, we were selling out venues in L.A. We played the Avalon. I got two phone calls. One was from Simon Cowell, and <laughs> the other phone call was from one of Natasha Bedingfield's people. I had a, a hit record with her called Love Like This, and the call from Simon was, Ryan, congratulations. You know, <laughs> I'm so happy for you. We've decided to make Bleeding Love the first single on <laughs> Leon Lewis. So... That all happened on the same day. He's like, congrats, you've got Leona's first single. And then I got another call saying, congrats, you've got Natasha Bedingfield's first single. And then we got offered a record deal. So, you know, when it rains, it pours. You come me open and I keep bleeding, keep, keep bleeding love. I keep bleeding, I keep, keep bleeding love. Keep bleeding, keep, keep bleeding love. 
So how did you start writing songs for Beyonce? The first One Republic album Beyonce picked up, and she fell in love with an album cut off of that album, like track 10 or 12 or whatever. She randomly called me out of the blue one day and said, I want you to write a song for my next album, and that turned out to be Halo. So Halo, I mean, you, you know, she's still closing her concerts with Halo. It's it's like yeah, one of the biggest songs of her life. <laughs> I, I want you to sort of take us through writing a song with Beyonce because there's a couple questions I have. First of all, your role in that, I imagine, was huge. You know, she's, yeah. she's calling you for a reason. But secondly, there's also the question, well, how much input does Beyonce really have in her music? Is she sort of like an editor or is she working with you head to head? Or how, how did it work with uh, writing a song like Halo, which is a signature song for her? Yeah, so it's evolved. That came out... I want to say like it was spring summer 2009 I think is when it came out her involvement has evolved in the last seven years now she's highly involved as a top liner a lyricist Halo was more I don't want to say a commissioned piece but that's kind of what it was it mm-hmm. was I like what you do send me a song done send me a completed song but Halo was done written uh, with me and a friend of mine Evan Bogart so he came over and three hours later he left and, and Halo had been written. And the only thing that was missing was the bridge, which I did the next day. And in, incidentally was the only part of the song she changed. There is an original uh, middle eight section that's a kind of a piano solo section. And what she did, which I thought was physically impossible, was take my crazy piano arpeggio melody and she sang it. So when, when you hear her singing in the bridge, just doing that melody, she's mimicking what the piano was doing. That makes sense. You're, you're just starting out. You're an unknown quantity. You're just sending tracks. Something connects with the artist. You, you yep. aren't even in the same room with her throughout the yep. crafting of Halo. But now, does she give you a ring and you go over to the place, you know, and you sit side by side on piano, she's in her sweats. I mean, is that how it is now or is that how it is with Adele? I would say that is more how it is now in my experience with her than, than it's ever been. But she, at this point, is at that stage where... She can literally do what she wants with with or without radio support. There's very, very few finite instances where an artist themselves becomes the hit and the song no longer needs to be the hit, if that makes sense. And the only two artists I can think of in that realm right now are Adele and Beyonce. You know what I mean? It's like Mm -hmm. they are the hit. They trump the song. And it seems like with Adele, Adele has always sort of prided herself on being a songwriter. And I'm wondering, was the, was the role, the function that you played in collaborating with her different than the way it was with Beyonce when, when your relationship started? Yeah, different. Adele is more the more typical experience I've had, except that her talent is so not typical. 21 was different than 25. On 21, you know, I, I was a fan of 19. We ran into each other randomly in a, in a hotel elevator uh, after the Grammys a few years back and said, hey, I'd love to work with you. I said, me too. Here's my number. Ditto. One month later, we do turning tables in London. I won't let you close enough to hug me. No, I 
I got lucky. You know, I, I knew she was going through some some difficult situations, so I I always try to get in the frame of mind of the artist I'm in the room with. You know, when I'm when I'm in writer producer mode, I'm no longer the lead singer of One Republic. Any amount of stars in your eyes goes out the window and you're there to service the artist. I mean, you're 100% there to service the song, which in turn services the artist. You know, some some of your favorite uh, uh, acts growing up, the people that made you make music are Peter Gabriel yeah. and The Police yes. and The Beatles yeah. and Stevie Wonder. They didn't have songwriting help. You know, Beyonce is clearly an interpreter in the great yes. pop tradition, but, you know, Adele, Taylor Swift, why do they need help? Why shouldn't I hear something that comes from them alone in the acoustic guitar? It's like, why are there four, sometimes nine writers on this? I mean, Kanye, 16 writers on, hmm. on a song. Yeah. Why, why does this happen? Before the late 90s, early 2000s, writers were writers. Some artists were writers, some weren't. There's a Mason-Dixon line between writing and producing. What, what qualified as publishing ownership of a song or production ownership of a song. The tracks have become so complex that it, on some modern records, you've got two or three guys alone working just on the track. Every single guitar note, every drum pitched and tuned to match the, the guitars and piano. And then you have the two people who are helping the artist write the lyric and melody. So there, before you know it, you've got five, six people on one song. <laughs> Taylor Swift can sit alone in her bedroom with her guitar, all right? And the genius of Taylor Swift is there. How does yes. the committee make her better? I will say this. No artist I've ever written with in my career has contributed more of the actual song than Taylor Swift to a writing session. Taylor contributed so much so quickly that for the first time and only time, I actually felt bad for my share. I was like, God, I don't even know if I, des if I earned what I did. She'll send you a voice memo the night before saying, so I just sat down and I was thinking, and she's literally talking on the voice memo like this. And I was thinking maybe something kind of like this. Welcome to New York. It's been waiting for you. You know, she literally goes into the song, and I'm like, I write back, what do you mean something like? Like, that? that's the whole song. Like, <laughs> Welcome to New York. It's been waiting for you. Welcome to New York. Welcome to New York. But here's the difference. Taylor is not going to sit down uh, in a studio packed with gear and spend five hours dialing in the synthesizer sound that's the lead of the song. She's not going to suggest, maybe we should add a new chord in the bridge, go to the minor third and switch it up a little bit. That's the production. And those are the things that in a modern era, if you don't nail that, if you don't nail the sounds of the song, as, as much as the lyric and the melody, the song's not going to fly. Uh, Ryan, do you think we lose some of the humanity? when, when yes. something like that is happening. You know, you, you listen to a Billie Holiday record from the yeah. 30s and it still sounds yeah. great. What's a generation or three, four generations down the road going to think of this music? Will it hold up? Because it's sort of sapped out some of the humanity. I don't know. That's the million dollar question. I absolutely believe that humanity gets lost. I have serious doubts about the classical nature or longevity of most records being made today. We're in a almost what maybe could be the equivalent of the disco era in, in which, yeah, one or two songs will survive, pun intended. <laughs> uh, the vast majority are here today, gone tomorrow, but we now live in a consumption market mm -hmm. where that doesn't really matter as much. Most of my peers aren't sitting around thinking about on those terms anymore. It literally doesn't matter. The classical nature of these records isn't what's driving these people. They're, they're more like, I just want something new. And then mm -hmm. when I'm done with that, I want something else new. And guess what I want after that? I want something else new. 
We've been talking to Ryan Tedder. We could talk music to you all day. It's been a real treat, Ryan. Likewise. Thanks for having me. That wraps up our conversation with artist and songwriter Ryan Tedder. Who's your favorite songwriter of all time? Leave us a message at 888-859-1800. When we come back, we'll share our thoughts on the highly anticipated release from R&B artist Frank Ocean, and I'll choose a song I can't live without for the Desert Island Jukebox. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim Irrigatis, and that is a track from the new Frank Ocean record, Blonde, called Nikes. Uh, he was kind of one of those hired guns. This is uh, appropriate for this show, Jim. We've talked about some great songwriters of the past and present. Frank Ocean himself uh, was writing for some major artists, Justin Bieber, John Legend, Brandy, Beyonce. That was about a decade ago, but he really felt like, well, I'm meant to do something more. I'm meant to do something on my own. He started uh, writing and uh, recording his own music. His uh, 2011 mixtape, Nostalgia Ultra, won a ton of acclaim. That album was heavily sample-based, though, and he was working on something much more ambitious that he put out in the following year, and that album was called Channel Orange. That's the record that got everybody excited. He won a Grammy Award for that record. It reached number two on the Billboard charts, sold over a half million copies, and then silence for roughly four years. Other than a brief tour, uh, there was not a lot of music coming out of the Frank Ocean camp uh, during this period of time. That built up in tremendous anticipation to the point where I heard some pundits a few months ago saying there is no way, no way this guy can live up to the hype that is preceding these releases. He went nuts, though. Uh, He offered not one but two albums, as we mentioned at the top of the show, Uh, basically a work-in-progress type of record that he called Endless, which basically showed uh, how he was making this record, uh, accompanying uh, an elaborate movie uh, that went alongside it. And then the following day, releasing the official follow-up to Channel Orange, and that is the record we're going to focus on now. It's called Blonde. Here's a track from it. It's called Godspeed, Frank Ocean, Blonde on Sound Opinions. I will always love you. 
how I do Let go of a prayer for you Just a sweet word The table is prepared for you Wishing you Godspeed, glory There will be mountains you won't move Still I'll always be there for you How I do That is Godspeed by Frank Ocean from his second formal album, Blonde. And what an album it is, Greg. We are in the era of the stealth album release by superstars, right? Kanye West, Beyonce, Rihanna have all done that. I don't think anybody's done it with as much ambition as Frank Ocean. This is a low-key, moody, atmospheric album. Uh, It doesn't grab you right away. It requires several listens. There are certainly hooks here. But it is in that understated tradition that's been dominating R&B in recent years. I was feeling old while listening to this record. I don't, I don't often feel that way. I, I was feeling like my, my other job, uh, the college professor, right, teaching a lot of young millennials and, and hearing their concerns. Uh, you know, sexual fluidity, the fluidity of gender roles is a major issue among this generation today. And Frank Ocean deals with that, I think, better than any other artist on the spectrum today. Disconnection, the difficulty of making real connections in relationships, in friendships, in this digital age when communication is easier than ever, right? I think these are two major issues that run through this album, along with many others. I mean, this is really an extraordinary album that deserves to have you spend some time with it. It's a buy-it record. It's an extraordinary record in in many ways, Jim, one of which is that uh, it it doesn't sound like anything else quite out there in the landscape. And we can draw comparisons to people like The Weeknd, the the more low-key side of Kanye, but really it occupies its own universe. Or or even indie artists. You know, there's an Elliott Smith sample on here. Elliott Smith worked a similar mood sometimes. Well, we'll look at the range of guests and uh, producers and song credits on this record. You've got Beyonce, you've got the Beatles with a a song credit, Uh, you've got Rick Rubin producing, I mean, you've got a Kendrick Lamar cameo, but none of these feel like a big part of the record. They're all sort of blended in. When Beyonce appears on her track, you can barely tell she's there. She's just kind of a background voice. Yeah. There's a beauty here and, a, and, 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 and a, uh, an anguish that I hear in his voice, but also a lot of love. The loss of love, the yearning for love, uh, the fear of death, but also the acceptance that, you know, we're not going to be here forever. What are we doing with our time on this planet? Why are we wasting time building these divisions between people when love is really what it's all about? Uh, it sounds simple, but it's really moving to me. This is a great record. It's a buy it record. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Yeah. 
come on. You remember, we were shipwrecked together. As often as possible, we'd like to take a trip to the desert island and drop a quarter in the desert island jukebox and play a track we cannot live without. Jim, it's your turn. Greg, I have been eager to talk for a couple of weeks about Stranger Things, that Netflix phenomenon. Everybody's seen it. I don't think you've caught up yet, but it was I wonderful. all eight, man. Oh, did you? Binge down. Right, that, yeah. That's in the last week. <laughs> all right. I got there first. One of the most extraordinary things to me, being a music geek, was the soundtrack, right? The, the score for that series, very consciously, like everything else, like the plot and the characters and so many of the props, was reaching back to a period in the late 70s, early to mid 80s. It was nostalgic in a way, but but you couldn't always pin your finger on it, right? I mean, what were they going for? Were they going for Spielberg? Were they going for David Lynch? What were they doing? That's sort of the brilliance of the series. The music is great. It was done by an Austin, Texas synthesizer duo called Survive. What were they influenced by? I found one interview where they actually confessed that they were both huge Tangerine Dream fans. Now, we've talked about Krautrock on this show many times. It's a genre you and I both love. In the early 70s, the synthesizer-driven German reaction to the psychedelic explosion of a few years before. Tangerine Dream was a key band in that movement, although they're really hard for the novice to get into because there are more than 100 albums in their discography. Uh, And they range from early craftwork-like synthesizer music to just kind of new-age dreck. They'd been founded in 67 in that Krautrock moment. Edgar Freus was the only member throughout all of their many incarnations. Other people came and went. They did a lot of soundtracks. I think the best is for a movie called Sorcerer. 1977, it's a remake of a French movie called uh, The Wages of Fear, where a bunch of misfits who have nowhere else to turn because they've all committed horrible crimes wind up in South America and they have to transport nitroglycerin by truck through the jungles, right? It's an extraordinary movie. And it's one of the best examples in all of film history, I think, of of a score perfectly matching the tension of the plot as well as the visuals of this dark, horrible, humid jungle. Tangerine Dream went over and above. I think that Survive, the Texas band, was really aping Risky Business or Firestarter. Tangerine Dream did those soundtracks too for those movies, and it would be more in keeping with Stranger Things. But this is the Tangerine Dream everybody should hear. It's the main theme from the movie Sorcerer. It's called Betrayal on Sound Opinions.
That is Tangerine Dream with Betrayal, the theme from the film Sorcerer made me uh, think of that once again because of Stranger Things. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, you know, it's the passing of summer, the end of summer. Tell me about it. I feel like third grade again. I gotta go back to school as well as all the young kids. Well, we got some songs to make it a little easier on you. All right. Sound Opinions is produced by Brendan Banizak, Evan Chung, and Alex Claiborne. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. Hey, this is Jessica calling from Raleigh, North Carolina. I was just listening to your episode um, where you were talking about songs, Olympic athletes before their event. And um, I have to say that your choices did not resonate with me. When I crossed it, you know, most people look to that song when they're going for a new PR, a new personal record. They're lifting a weight they've never done before. I like to listen to something. It's got to be up-tempo and have a driving beat. And I want to feel like I'm overcoming some sort of struggle, you know, a little bit of anger, but also a message of like believing in yourself and triumph. My personal song, I like to PR to um, when I'm lifting weights, is Rap Music by Killer Mike. What I say might save a life, what I speak might save the streets. I ain't got no instruments, but I got my hands and feet. Hands on clapping, feet on tap. Every beats to make that slap. And I ride them with my raps, and they all tight as my naps. And my naps is all I got. Beautiful evidence in and the music in my heart and the words put in the wind and the words put in the wind coming back like a boomerang when I take this microphone what is the crowd they start to sing. When he says he feels it in his bones and all he doesn't have any instruments, all he's got his hands and his feet, you know, I'm not the strongest, but I'm showing up, I'm doing the work and I believe in myself and I'm feeling it. And that is definitely my go to workout song. Thanks so much guys. Maria Maria, é Maria, meu bem Se eu não sou João de nada Maria que é minha É Maria ninguém Maria ninguém Hey guys, so this is Nando uh, calling from Berlin uh, I am a Brazilian who has lived abroad for almost 11 years now and with all of the news about all the things that were going to go wrong with my country during this Olympics, most of which actually didn't actually come true, thankfully. But yeah, it's kind of a nice change to hear you guys talk about this important music of Brazil, which is Bossa Nova. I guess for a long time I didn't really appreciate it because, well, you know, it's your parents' music. It didn't feel very revolutionary in the 90s when I was growing up. It felt a bit sort of old and stale. But I think the longer I live abroad, the more I can appreciate the uniqueness of Brazilian music. And it has so much to do with our society and, and how our culture is a mix of all these different things. And listening to the history of all of this is so cool. There's so much there that I didn't know myself. Thanks, guys. Love the show. Hi, my name is Daniel from Chicago. Enjoying this current episode, talking about Brazilian music, and one band that deserves a shout-out is uh, Sepultura. They influenced 
you know, tons of bands all around the world. Not only that, but they really carried the political torch for, you know, the common people of Brazil. Keep rocking, right? Hi, this is Bill from Fairport, New York. I just listened to your great show on Brazilian music, but I was astounded that you forgot Tim Maia. Not quite sure how you could have a program on Brazilian music and not include the soul of Brazil. Vou pedir pra você gostar. Vou pedir pra você me amar. Eu te amo, eu te adoro. Some of my favorite music on the planet. Love the show. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.